Morning, church family. Welcome to Desert Hills Baptist Church, our first service here today. Looking forward to this service and the one at 1030 as well. Thank you for joining us. Those of you that are joining us online as well, we're going to be in the Gospel of John this morning, John chapter 21. We're going to start at about verse 1 and go through about verse 25. We're going to talk about the subject of overcoming failure. Again, we're post-resurrection. We looked at before Resurrection Sunday, Easter Sunday, the events leading up to the uh, crucifixion and passion and then resurrection of Jesus Christ. Easter Sunday, we talked about the resurrection. Last week was post-resurrection as we looked at the, uh, uh, the man by the name of Cleophas and I believe his wife on the road to Emmaus and how their eyes were opened as Jesus reasoned with them out of the Scripture. And today, we're going to look at a very familiar passage of Scripture found here in John 21. Now, think with me for a moment about your greatest failure. Think about your greatest failure. Now, let me ask you this morning, I'm not going to, when I ask a rhetorical question, I'm not literally looking for an answer. So please don't talk about uh, publicly your greatest failure this morning, all right? But in your mind, think about what was your greatest failure. Maybe it was a marriage. Maybe it was a relationship, a friendship. Maybe it was a job that was your dream job and you got it and you got in the job but you really never settled in or really never took up your responsibilities and the dream job that you'd always hoped for, you blew it. Maybe it was an action, something you did or something you said and you've had to live with the consequences of that failure even to this day. Uh, maybe it was an attitude. You had an attitude for a period of months or weeks or years and that attitude kept you from going forward in your life and maybe even in your relationships. It's difficult and sometimes even impossible to live with failure. It's hard to rehearse the actions that have caused us and sometimes others grief. But let me say this morning, failure doesn't have to be fatal. Failure doesn't necessarily have to be a life sentence. In fact, here's what the Bible says about failure. Proverbs chapter 24 and verse 16. It says, A just man falleth, or you could even say, faileth seven times, and riseth up again. Now, it, it's not talking about exclusively failing seven times and saying, okay, I've, I've checked off my seven failures. That's it. I can never be used of God again. The expression seven times is an uh, expression that means in, into infinitum, meaning it continues on and on and on. So you don't just fail seven times and then give up. You fail and you keep on failing. You keep on failing. Then you get back up and you keep getting back up and you keep getting back up. Now, as we look at the Bible, we see the Bible is replete with failures. Now, Adam fell and brought sin, the curse, sickness, death, and devastation to all mankind. But yet, you and I, every one of us, are children of Adam. Now, not only did Adam fail, Noah fell. 
when he got drunk and allowed his nakedness to be uncovered by his family. Now, we don't know much about Noah after those events took place, but Noah had a big failure, but yet he still mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11 the great hall of faith. Not only did Adam and Noah fall, Abraham fell. He fell by taking a second wife. God's intent for all men always has only been one woman for one man, one woman and one man together for the rest of their lives. But, but Abraham listened to his wife Sarah. They couldn't have children, although God promised them that they were going to have children. And, and Sarah and Abraham both got impatient and they said, okay, uh, why don't you take Hagar to wife? And then he took Hagar to wife and, and bore Ishmael as a son. And then Hagar hated Ishmael. Uh, excuse me, uh, Sarah hated Ishmael and she hated Hagar and she put him out when she had her own son Isaac. And those peoples have been warring together uh, even to this day. Moses failed when he smote the rock when he should have spoken to it and he forfeited his inheritance to the promised land. Gideon failed by asking God multiple times for signs even though God had told Gideon that he was going to be a mighty man of valor and God was going to use him to win a great victory for the nation of Israel. But Gideon said, well, wait a minute, God. Why don't you make the fleece wet and the ground dry and then vice versa, why don't you make the ground wet and the fleece dry and only then and only then will I believe you, God. Gideon failed in that. David failed when he took someone else's wife as his own. And then to cover his tracks, he had that person murdered. The Bible is replete with failures. But failure doesn't have to be final. Failure can be the means whereby we can grow in the greatest way. Malcolm Muggeridge said this. He said, if we did not fail, we would never make any progress. Failure demands that we assess our past methods to see what we have done right and wrong. Failure helps us discard the terminal and the obsolete and opens us to new ways and new ideas. Many, many years ago, a young man ran for legislature in a large state and was badly defeated. He entered business next and failed and spent 17 years of his life paying the debts of himself and a worthless partner. He fell in love with a beautiful woman and got engaged, but she fell to some sickness and died. Re-entering politics, he ran for Congress but was badly defeated. He then tried to get an appointment to the United States Land Office but failed. He became a candidate for the United States Senate and was badly defeated. He ran again two years later and again was defeated once again. It was one failure on top of another failure on top of another failure, and that seemed to be his lot in life. But he refused to give up and eventually became the president, probably the greatest president we've ever had in his name, you know it, Abraham Lincoln. And we're all glad that he didn't give up even though he failed multiple times. Failure is indispensable for our spiritual progress. How are we going to learn until we see the insufficiency of ourself in our need, our desperate need 
of God. You see, without recognizing our spiritual failures as sinners, none of us can ever be saved. That's exactly what John was talking about in the book of 1 John. In fact, 1 John chapter 1 and verse 8, John says, If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Skipping to verse 10, John says, If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. And then it says in verse 9, right sandwiched between these two verses that are helping us to understand uh, that we are sinners and that we are in desperate need. It says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us all of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You see, as a part of the fallen human race, we have sinned and we've all come short of the glory of God. And the fact of the matter is we all have failed. Romans tells it this way. Now we know that whatsoever things the law saith, it saith to them that are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. You see, before a man can be saved, man has to understand his sin. Man has to understand his guilt. And, and here's what the Bible goes on to say. It says, therefore, by the deeds of the law shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. So some people will say to him, well, pastor, you know, I know I'm going to heaven because I've never broken any of the Ten Commandments, to which I'll say, you've never told a lie? And some will say, well, I've only told little white lies. So what's the difference between a white lie and a different colored lie? A lie is a lie is a lie. And the fact of the matter is, we have all probably coveted something. I remember when I was 12 years old, I wanted so badly a red line BMX bicycle. I prayed, I wasn't a praying kid at the time, and I prayed to God that I'd get a red line BMX bicycle. That's how serious I was about wanting a red line BMX bicycle. And I prayed, and, and my birthday came, and there was a big box out in front of a, uh, the house, and there was, it was all wrapped, and, and they brought it in, and I was like, it's for me, it's for me, it's my birthday. And I opened up the box, Box, and on the outside it said Sears Craftsman Lawnmower. <laughs> and I thought, surely there's a bike inside. And I opened it up thinking that my dad put a bike uh, unassembled into a Sears Craftsman Lawnmower box. And sure enough, it was a Sears Craftsman Lawnmower. <laughs> Needless to say, I had to buy my own bike. <laughs> with that lawnmower. <laughs> but we've all coveted something. And the Bible says that we're not saved by keeping the law. The law was given to us to help us understand that we're sinners and that we're in need of a Savior. The law was never given to us as a means to make ourselves right in the sight of God. The law was given to us so that we could understand that we have failed and that we're all in need of Jesus. In fact, the Bible goes on to say and explain how we can overcome the failure of sin. It says, but now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God, which is by faith 
of Jesus Christ unto all and upon all that believe, for there is no difference. The only way that we could ever be appearing righteous in the eyes of God is if we put our faith in what Jesus Christ has done for us. He who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Why? Because the Bible goes on to say in Romans uh, 3.23, it says, for all have sinned, and we've come short of the glory of God. All of us have failed, and we've come short of God's glory. And maybe this morning, the way for you to move on from your failures, the failures of the human race, and your own personal failures, are to, maybe that way for you to own up to your failures is to come by faith personally and receive Jesus' payment as your own, canceling out your debt of sin and being saved even today. Now, none of us is a stranger to failure. Now, if you've never failed at anything, you've never attempted anything. If you've never failed at anything, you've never attempted anything. How many of you know the name Thomas Alva Edison? Thomas Alva Edison. Most of us hear about him still in history. He held 1,093 patents for 1,093 different inventions. Now, many of them, like the light bulb, like the phonograph, like the motion picture camera, uh, were brilliant creations that have had a huge influence even on our lives today. However, not everything he created was a success. In fact, he said, I have not failed 10,000 times. I have successfully found 10,000 ways that will not work. <laughs> Someone well said of Christianity, Christianity from Golgotha onwards has been the sanctification of failure. Think about that for a moment. Christianity from Golgotha onwards has been the sanctification of failure. Now, Peter here in our text, the great rock, had to rise from the rock heap of failure. We saw Peter failing as Peter uh, three times denied Jesus before the cock crew. We saw Peter failing a few weeks ago when Jesus was standing before the Sanhedrin and the only one that was admitting to being a follower of Jesus anywhere nearby was John the Beloved. And our failures, we need to understand, bring us face to face with the weakness and the inadequacies of us all that lie within so that God's strength can be made perfect in our weakness. Now, one of the blessings of the gospel is it brings us face to face with the reality about ourselves and the world in which we live. And as we look at the text this morning, we see a group of men who overcame their failures, and because they did, they literally turned the world upside down, and as a result, you and I have Christianity today. You and I believe the same things they believe. You and I believe, even though we haven't seen Jesus literally with our own eyes, we see him in the pages of the Bible, and by faith, we put faith in those things, and, and our lives are changed as well. And the setting of our text is the Sea of Tiberias, commonly known as the Sea of Galilee. In over, in over a week, the emotions of all the disciples have been set on edge. They have gone from happiness and adulation on Palm Sunday to the depths of despair and fear and discouragement when Jesus was crucified, and then they were swept up into hope as they got news of the resurrection. 
Now, many would look at John 21 and criticize the disciples for returning to their former trade of fishing. But after all they had gone through, a good night of fishing was probably exactly what the doctor ordered. And not only that, a guy's got to eat, right? A guy's got to eat. And so we find them fishing in John 21. The seven of the Galilean disciples returned 70 miles north to Galilee. Peter here in the account is the initiator back to fishing. Notice what the scripture says. Simon Peter saith unto them, I go a fishing. They say unto him, we also go with thee. They went forth and entered into a ship immediately, and that night they caught nothing. Now Peter together with the Galilean six know these waters, and they know the best time to fish them, but they have fished all night, and they didn't even catch one fish. As they pull in their nets to call it a night, they heard a voice from the shore calling out from the shoreline. The Bible says when Peter was, the morning was come, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples knew not that it was Jesus. Then Jesus saith unto them, Children, have you any meat? They answered him, No. Hey, did you catch any fish? How's the fishing last night? How'd you do? Did you get any? No. And he said unto them, Cast the net on the right side of the ship, and ye shall find. Now, if you know anything about fishermen, especially fishermen that grew up in the area that they're fishing, they do not like to be told how to do what they're doing that they've spent their whole lives doing. They don't like to be told how to fish. But something is familiar about the voice from the shore, and what do they have to lose? So the Bible says, they cast therefore, and they were not able to draw it for the multitude of fishes. John and Peter respond exactly how they did when they heard the news of the empty tomb. John reflects. He says, wait a minute, something's different about that voice. And Peter reacts. He puts on, he's naked, the Bible says. He's probably in a loincloth or something. He's probably in his skivs. He's doing the work of a fisherman. He puts on his coat. He jumps in the water to go and meet with Jesus. The Bible says, therefore, that disciple whom Jesus loved saith unto Peter, it is the Lord. Now, when Simon Peter heard it, it was the Lord, he girded his fisher's coat unto him, for he was naked, and then cast himself into the sea. And the other disciples came in a little ship, for they were not far from land, but as it were 200 cubits, dragging the net with the fishes. And as soon as they were come to land, they saw a fire of coals there, and fish laid thereon and bread. So Jesus had prepared breakfast, laid around a warm fire. This is exactly what they need after a long night of fishing on the cool waters of the Sea of Galilee. A warm fire and some food. But as they haul in their catch and ready themselves to eat with Jesus, who has appeared for them now the third time, Jesus tries to give them several lessons on how to overcome their failures. Lessons that if we take heed to today, I believe can change the direction of our lives. So first of all, they needed to understand the importance of the reliance upon God's truth and the power of Jesus Christ to accomplish the work that Jesus had called them to do. Now, when these disciples began to follow Jesus, they were full of hope. They were looking forward to all of the possibilities of what it meant to be a disciple. In fact, Mark explains that they were called out in this way in Mark chapter 1 and verse 16. Now, as he walked by the Sea of Galilee, Jesus, he saw Simon, or Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, and they were fishers. And Jesus said unto them, follow me, and I will make you to become fishers of men. 
Now, the Bible goes on to say, not only did he call Simon and, and Andrew, or Peter and Andrew, and straightway they forsook their nets and followed him. And when he had gone a little further thence, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were in the ship mending their nets. And straightway he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the ship with the hired servants and went, went after him. Now, in our text, we find them now picking up their nets once again to ply themselves even for a time in their old trade. We find these skilled fishermen in familiar waters with familiar people in a familiar place. They have fished all night, and they didn't catch one, the Bible says. And as soon as Jesus instructs them to follow instructions, they then catch a mother load of fish that it takes two boats to haul them in. In fact, the Bible says, cast the net on the right side and you shall find, and they were not able to draw it for the multitude of fishes. Now, Jesus teaches them once again a lesson that God's work done without God's power will not amount to anything. This is a lesson that every one of the disciples should have been familiar with. This is a lesson that every one of us should get familiar with ourselves. In John chapter 15, Jesus was trying to give the disciples some instruction in how they were to live their lives. And he uses this word called abide. And the word abide means to dwell in, to, to live therein. And here's what Jesus says in John chapter 15, verse 1. I am the vine, my father is the husbandman. Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away. And every branch that beareth fruit, he purgeth it, that it may bring forth more fruit. Now you're clean through the word which I've spoken unto you. Then it says in verse 4, Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, except it abide in the vine. No more can ye, except you abide in me. So let's imagine I had a citrus tree up here this morning. I was just at a place the other day, and in the backyard was, it was probably an acre yard here in Arizona, and uh, it, was, uh, had, it was filled with all these beautiful trees, and some of the trees were, were citrus trees. They had a Mexican lime tree. They had a, a grapefruit tree. They had a, uh, some type of orange tree. They had all these other trees. They had a, a, a big oak tree and a, 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 some type of cedar tree. It was just beautiful shade in Arizona, amen? I said, you ought to charge for admission to this backyard. This is awesome. But as I was back there, I, I noticed these citrus trees, and a citrus tree cannot bear any fruit. A branch cannot bear any fruit unless it's getting its sustenance from the trunk. You see, the trunk uh, gets nutrients from the ground. The trunk gets uh, water from the ground. The trunk gets, uh, you know, the, the alkali and the phosphorus and everything that it needs to be able to take uh, uh, the life-giving uh, uh, elements up to the branch so that the branch can bear the flower, which can eventually bear the fruit, which can eventually go to, to our homes. And you see, as Christians, unless we are dwelling or getting our source or sustenance from the trunk, from, from Jesus, we're never going to bear anything. And so verse 5 says it this way. It says, I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abideth or dwelleth or gets its sustenance in me, and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. And then he makes this statement. For without me, you can do nothing. 
Why is it that we have to continually learn that lesson again and again and again and again? You know, the Bible says of your house, it says, except the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. In almost 30 years of ministry, I have done probably close to 300 funerals. I've probably only done less than 25 weddings. Now, why is that? Are there more people dying than getting married? I don't, I, I, I don't know that that's necessarily so. And I, I'll tell people, I will bury anybody, but as long as I can preach the gospel, but I'm not going to marry anybody. Because if I marry somebody, I'm putting my, my stamp on that relationship. And the first meeting I always have with a couple that is wanting me to do a, a, a wedding for them, I always sit them down and I'll say, what kind of house do you want to have? And they'll say, what do you mean what kind of house we want to have? We want to have a happy home. We want a home where there's love. We want a home uh, where there is a, a, a nurturing and caring and all those things. And I'll ask them, do you want a spiritual house? And they'll say, what do you mean? And I'll explain to them, this is what a spiritual house is. A house where Jesus is often spoken of. A house when there's difficulty in the home, uh, not the last resort, but the first response is to take all the needs to God a house when there's even problems in relationships. Uh, they, they look to the truth of the Word of God to then try to resolve those problems, and they don't try to, to, to do what they're doing on their own. They always try to do what they're doing through, through God's strength and God's truth. And, and here's the thing. I, I will help you to get married if you want a spiritual house, but if you don't want one, then I can recommend somebody that might do it for you. And so in almost 30 years of ministry, I've done... 300 funerals and probably less than 25 weddings. But let me ask you this morning, do you want a spiritual house? For without him, we can do nothing. Without him, we can do nothing. A.W. Tozer, early on in my Christian life, was one of my favorite authors. The Divine Conquest... Uh, the Pursuit of God, some of his more famous books. If you've never read a Tozer book, uh, I would encourage you to, uh, to, to, to find yourself there. But A.W. Tozer said this years ago, he said, if the Holy Spirit were taken out of this world, 95% of Christian work would continue. Why? Because most of what we do as Christians, we don't do in reliance upon God's truth, in God's power, we do on our own. We do on our own. You see, these disciples who are confronted once again with Jesus failed Jesus in his hour of need because they didn't rely on the spiritual resources that even Jesus directed them towards. When Jesus was going through the passion outside of Peter, who was denying, and John, who followed afar off, the rest were nowhere to be found because they had not personally uh, put into practice the profound truth of relying on God's power and relying on God's truth when facing difficult things. Let me just say this. We will continue to fail until and unless we do as well. So let me ask you another question. Have you been relying on God's word and God's power for your daily living, for your home, for your relationships? 
If not, you're setting yourself up for failure. Secondly, Jesus not only gave them a poignant lesson concerning doing things God's way with God's strength to overcome and prevent failure, he also gave them a lesson concerning taking ownership of their failure. Taking ownership of their failure. Now, the breakfast around the campfire led to a public confrontation between Peter and Jesus. Part of the reason it was public uh, was that Peter's denials and his disgrace towards Jesus during his hour of need were also public. So these public sins needed to be addressed in a public manner in order for Peter to be restored in the eyes of others. So notice the text. So when they had dined, Jesus saith to Peter, Simon, son of Jonas. Now notice Jesus didn't address Peter as Peter. He calls him Simon, son of John. He, he couldn't call him Peter the Rock because Peter had failed to live up to that name. Jesus is trying to get Simon Peter to face up to his failures so that he can serve and trust Jesus in a restored and renewed way. Simon, in his own power and abilities, will always only be Simon. But Simon trusting in Jesus is Peter the rock that would be used of God to open up the doors of the gospel to the Jews in Acts chapter 2, to the Samaritans in Acts chapter 8, and to the Gentiles, to the house of Cornelius in Acts chapter 10. Now, notice Jesus' question to Peter. Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me more than these? In other words, Peter, do you love me more than these other disciples? Do you love me more than John? Do you love me more than James? Do you love me more than Andrew and the other Galileans that were there? Do you love me more than these? Now, Peter had once bragged about his commitment to Jesus. In Matthew chapter 26 and verse 33, Peter answered and said, Though all men shall be offended because of thee, yet will I never be offended. Jesus, if, if anybody fails you, it's not going to be me. I'm going to always be by your side. I'm with you to the end. Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me? It's interesting, the word love. Jesus to Peter is the word agape, agapeo, which is a word that is the highest form of love that means to give without ever expect, expecting anything in return to give to, the, or to love to the point of sacrifice. And so Jesus asked Peter, Peter, do you agape me more than these others? And Peter in his shame responds in a, in a way that he can't even say agape. He knows he's failed. In fact, uh, he gingerly responds, Yea, Lord, thou knowest that I love thee, and his word is phileo. You know that I'm fond of you. And then the question is asked by Jesus two other times, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me? Do you agape me? And then the third time, Simon, son of Jonas, do you at least phileo me? Do you at least, are you fond of me? You see, Jesus is trying to get Peter to take responsibility and ownership for his failures before he could be effectively used as God wanted him to be used. Jesus is so insistent on Peter's accountability that he's willing to hurt Peter's pride and possibly public embar publicly embarrass him in front of the others so that he can be restored. And so, verse 17, Peter was grieved because he said unto him the third time, Lovest thou me? And he said unto him, Lord, thou knowest all things, thou, thou know that I lovest thee. Jesus saith unto him, 
feed my sheep. You see, before we can be restored from our failure, we too need to take personal responsibility and ownership for our failures. Now, Peter would go on to be an effective servant for Jesus. But he would not have unless he was brought to the place where he took personal responsibility and owned up to his own actions. Now, we are very hesitant as human beings to take personal responsibility. Just like in the garden, Adam blamed Eve, the woman thou gavest me. Eve blamed the serpent, it was the serpent. And then they both blame God. God, it's your fault. And we're the same way. We like to play the blame game. Now, hear me out. I'm not diminishing any pain. I'm not diminishing any trauma. I'm not diminishing any sin that you've suffered by the hands of others. But at some point, we need to quit blaming our mom. We need to quit blaming our fathers. We need to quit blaming our siblings, our boss, our spouse, our children, our friends, our environment, the country in which we live, and take personal responsibility and ownership for our actions, repent over them, repent from them, and move forward from our failures. Now, this morning, what failures do you need to own up to today? Maybe you need to make a phone call. Maybe you need to call somebody that you've hurt and you failed, and maybe you need to say, you know what? I realize, I recognize that I did this to you, and I've offended you, I've hurt you, I've caused you grief, and I just want you to know that I realize that I'm taking ownership and taking responsibility, and I'm wanting to have a change of direction regarding these things. I'm wanting to repent of these things. Who do you need to do that to today? Thirdly, if we are to overcome failure, we need to understand a lesson concerning refocusing on Jesus' mission. You see, the experience of Peter taking ownership and responsibility and being forgiven by Jesus paves the way for Peter to serve Jesus in a new and restored way. Peter restored is Peter focusing on Jesus' mission. Now, Jesus' concern here is greater than Peter's welfare and emotional well-being. Jesus is genuinely concerned for his fragile church. So Peter is redirected to his mission. Peter is asked the question, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And Jesus then uh, gives Jesus, uh, Peter some instruction, feed my lambs, take care of my sheep, and feed my sheep, all throughout verses 15, 16, and 17. You see, following Jesus and loving Jesus means accepting responsibility for the people of Jesus found in the places where the people of Jesus reside, even in local churches. Commitment to Christ involves commitment to the church that Christ has established. Now, Jesus isn't a single person in the sense that he comes to us without uh, other attachment. He is a married person, if you will. He comes to us with a bride, the church, whom he loves and whom he sacrificed himself for. In fact, Ephesians 5 says he gave himself for the church. So when we think of our relationship to Jesus, that relationship is always coupled with a relationship to a place where the people of Jesus reside. That is his church. 
And if we are to overcome failure, let me just say it this way, we cannot do it alone. We need to focus on being the hands and feet of Jesus together to the world. Once we have dealt with our failures, we need to set ourselves back on task with a purpose. God's purpose for every believer is to be an active part of a local body of believers. Peter had a job to take care of, to lead, and to grow sheep. And we have the same job today as believers, as Christians found in local churches, of places of Jesus here today. We see something else. If we are to overcome failure, we need to understand the cost. We need to understand the cost. Peter, having taken ownership of his failure and refocusing on the mission of Jesus, is immediately confronted with the cost. Now, let me say this. It will always cost us something to move forward from our failures. Sometimes it'll cost us our pride. Sometimes we'll have to go to somebody and we'll have to let down the pride and we'll have to go in humility because if we know that if we go in pride, they'll never accept our apology. Sometimes it'll cost us our pride. Sometimes it, it, it is a new group of friends. Sometimes we need to relocate. Sometimes we need to change our attitudes and our responses that have been hurtful to others. Here is what Peter is informed of by Jesus as far as the cost. He says, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, when thou wast young, thou girdest thyself and walkest whither thou wouldest, but when thou shalt be old, thou shalt stretch forth thy hands. Then notice what verse 19 says, This spake he, signifying of what death he should glorify God. Jesus is literally pro prophetically preparing Peter for his eventual martyrdom. Most of you know that Peter died by the hands of of a Roman emperor, and Peter was going to be crucified just like Jesus, and when they told Peter, he asked and requested not to be crucified in the same way of Jesus, so he was crucified upside down. And that's how Peter lost his life, with stretched out hands. You see, we must understand that if we are to overcome our failures, it's always going to cost us something. Here's what Jesus said in Mark chapter 8 and verse 34. He says, And when he called the people unto him with his disciples also, he said unto them, Whosoever will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, but whosoever shall lose his life for my sake and the gospels, the same shall save it. One man wrote it this way, The Christian life is a continual mortification in which daily and in a thousand ways we die to self-will and do the will of the Lord. You see, to overcome failure and ourselves, we have to continually die to the desires of the flesh and ourself. And that will cost us something. That will cost every one of us something. So after receiving the pointed instruction from Jesus and how he's going to overcome his failures, Peter almost falls once again. He moves from being concerned about taking ownership and responsibility from his own actions and refocusing on Jesus' mission to once again jockeying for position with other disciples, not understanding the opportunity to accomplish Jesus' mission together with others. And Peter needs to learn one last lesson, and that is this, the importance of doing ministry together with others. Now, the Bible says, Then Peter, turning about, seeth the disciple whom Jesus loved following... 
which also leaned on his breast at supper and said, Lord, which is he that betrayeth? He's talking about the last supper. Then Peter seeth him, saith to Jesus, Lord, what shall this man do? In other words, John's coming along. John's ready to have a personal encounter with Jesus. And Peter is just given this instruction and is owning up to his uh, failures and his responsibilities and, and taking ownership and wanting to get back on task. And he sees John coming along and he's like, well, wait a minute. What are you going to have him do? Now, I know what you got for me to do, but, but what's he going to do? As if to say, is he going to have a higher position than me? Is he going to be more important than me? Is he going to have uh, maybe your right hand or your left hand in the kingdom of God, Jesus? What is he going to do? Instead of understanding the opportunity that they both could have done ministry together, he was jockeying to see who was going to be more important. You know what? That's so like us as human beings, isn't it? We want to be the greatest. When I was coming up, my dad and I used to watch boxing growing up, and I think boxing is terrible. You take a couple of guys, they get in a ring together, and they're taking their fists, and they're bashing each other's bodies, and their, their fists into the heads, and knocking each other on the ground, and there's blood, and there's sweat, and there's nastiness, and there's, there's, there's trauma, and there's pain, and, 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 and it should be outlawed. But until they do, I'm going to continue to watch it. But I remember we would watch uh, 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 Larry Holmes and, and uh, uh, Sugar Ray and all these guys boxing growing up, uh, the greats, you know, that we would think about growing up. And, and one of those boxers was Muhammad Ali. Now, when I was watching boxing growing up, he was a, a little bit long on the tooth as far as his career. He was still great. And, and I'm, I remember watching some of those uh, Ali-Holmes fights, and, 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 and he was still an awesome boxer. But, but you'd see Ali get on before a, a, a fight, and he would say something like this, I am the greatest. Float like a butterfly, sting like a bee. I'll mess with any sucker that, that messes with me. You know what I mean? He would go on and he would, he would get, like, and publicly try to embarrass whoever he was going to fight. He would talk smack like the guys today. I mean, he made an art of talking smack about his opponent. And then he would get out and most of the time he would take it to his opponent and he'd bash him in. But you know what that whole I am the greatest attitude for the Christian is probably something that needs to be ridden from our lives. Because in the work of God, it's not me being the greatest or you being the greatest. In the work of God, it's about Jesus being the greatest. And you see, we'll never overcome failure until we learn that lesson. We'll continue to fail and fail and fail. Why? Because only by pride cometh contention. That pride will continue to rise itself up. That pride will continue to make ourselves self-important. That pride will continue to damage relationships and cause contention and problems. That pride will help us to continue to fail. And Peter needed to learn the importance of John. He needed to learn the importance of James. He needed to learn the importance of Nathaniel. He needed to learn the importance of Andrew. He needed to learn the importance of every one of the other apostles and every one of the other disciples if they were going to accomplish the work of God together. And that's what we need to learn as a church as well. The importance of everybody that is here if the work of God is ever going to be accomplished 
in our eyes and in this place. So, how do we overcome failure? Failure doesn't have to be final. I mean, we all fail. We understand it. It's a part of life. But here's the deal. When you fail, you get back up. When you fail, you get back up. When you fail, you get back up. You try to apply these principles, taking ownership of, of, of uh, and personal responsibility for our actions, uh, getting back on mission, understanding we can't do things without Jesus, and keep getting back up. We've got to recognize and rely on God's truth and His power. We've got to take responsibility for our actions. We have to get back on purpose and understand that it's probably going to cost us something. And then as we're doing life together, as we're doing Christianity together, we do it best when we're together. We're together. You know what? Uh, we start small groups here this week at Desert Hills Baptist Church. If you haven't taken an opportunity to, to meet a, a small group leader or to sign up for small groups, and uh, you need to do so. I think life and ministry and everything that is Christian is done better together. So take an opportunity for that today.